Erroneous Constabulary Podcast. Welcome to the Erroneous Constabulary Podcast. Uh, we just want to thank you guys for checking us out today. And if, if this is your first time uh, kind of tuning in with us, we'd like just uh, beg you to go back and take a look at our mission statement and check that out. Kind of let you guys know what Will and I are about and kind of what we're driving at with all of this stuff. And and really, guys, to, to be completely honest with you, some of ours are going to be pretty graphic, so we've got some disclaimers, and if you're a little weak in the stomach, uh, you might want to skip over those, and the ones that aren't, you know, check us out, and then if you, you know, you want to go back and you decide you grow a sack and want to listen to some of those, then go back and listen to those and check them out and see, you know, see if you can handle it. Uh, buddy, we, we just want to let everybody know we, we sure love you, and we sure appreciate you tuning in for us, and, and uh, you know, with, 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 uh, you know, the uh, Batman to my Robin and the Joker to my Penguin freaking I'm sitting here with Will Ford, my, you know, Yo. buddy and and, uh, and uh, lifelong uh, friend, uh, or sober life friend anyway. So <laughs> uh, we got a we got a cool guest and, and Will's going to visit a little bit and then and then introduce our uh, introduce. Our guest yeah, guys, we're, th- this is going to be cool. We're, we're excited today. So a friend of ours, we've been kind of asking around to. Uh, you know our buddies who who could come on who would be interesting and and like we said in our last one we want about half of these to be recovery related we don't want them all to just be uh recovery stories and so today we're we're honored we have uh and i'm gonna screw your last name up again it's jerry arola arola jerry arola and jerry is a detective yeah he's kind of spent his life in law enforcement and being an entrepreneur and um, he is uh, the sh- uh, detective in Guadalupe County right yep. now. City of Marion. Yep. So, so just, I, I mean, man, we're in, and again, we're we're new at this, but wh- why don't you kind of start from the beginning, and and we'll just we'll just ask just 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 tell us about yourself and how you how you got involved in all that stuff, and sure, sure. we'll just kind of ask questions and yeah, just wing a, it. A little quick, a little quick synopsis. Readers, di- yeah. readers Digest yeah, version for of sure. It. A family yeah. background and then a little bit how you got into what you're doing and what you're doing now. Yeah, and, sure. And then we'll visit along the way. Okay. Well, I grew up in a real small town in Northern California. Okay. Um, I mean, real small. The whole county didn't have a stoplight, didn't have a theater, didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was the county sheriff, elected sheriff. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father before him was a U.S. Marshal uh, on Indian land. And so he was full Cherokee. My grandfather was the first Indian ever elected office in the state of California. Wow. And on my dad's side, so that's my mom's side of the family. He was Ballard. On my my dad's side, they were cattle ranchers. So I uh, grew up, you know, in the on the cattle in the cattle ranching sure. industry. And then my dad also built houses, whatever he could to make money back then. And and, uh, and I always had this love for law enforcement. Um, maybe not for the same reasons a lot of people do. I just always thought it was cool. Yeah. You know, get to drive fast and get to, to do cool stuff. I always mm-hmm. like to fight. Um, so I thought, well, that that's a great way to – You could. I, I was going to end up on one side or the other of the bar. Yeah, 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 I get it. And yeah, I almost yeah. ended up on the wrong side a couple of times. Uh, so, you know, I went, went through high school. I wrestled in high school. had a chance to do some collegiate wrestling also uh, with the University of Iowa. Um, ended up uh, – you know, making a decision early on to get married and have kids instead. Uh, I don't think was in that order, but <laughs> so, all right. That's all right. Neither did I. So. Yeah, <laughs> I found out that was my decision my first year of school, and so I did. I I, uh, I came back and I worked for an environmental company for a little bit because I just didn't want to get back into cattle ranching, and I wanted to, to get into law enforcement, but I wasn't old enough at the time. Um, so environmental company in California? Yeah, in California. Okay. So I actually went to Southern California and worked for an environmental company. We did water purification on a commercial level and, cool. and solar uh, industry and a uh, little bit of everything back then. 
And uh, and I did that for a while, and I and it, and, and learned that it uh, kind of had a knack for public speaking and for management. They moved me up pretty quick. And so by the time I was old enough to be a cop, I'd already gotten into management, and it kind of delayed me getting into law enforcement for a few years. And then finally, my grandfather, who was the sheriff, he, he died uh, Christmas Day of 87. And when he did, I, I made the decision that I'm going to follow my dream, get into law enforcement, and I did. It took me about a year to get everything together and finally get into the academy, and I started in 1989 and, uh, and just loved it. I worked in the Bay Area, California, and the, and the uh, San Jose Bay Area. Uh, as a police officer, I made detective within the first couple of years, um, specialized in sex crimes of all things. Uh, not that I, I never had any desire to be a sex crime investigator, right. but that's what happens when you're the new guy. Yeah. And so because I got pushed into it, uh, they had sent me to school and kind of specialized in it and being good at it. Now, do, do all police officers start out working, you know, dri- driving around? Yeah, 99.999% uh, okay. are going to. If there's that rare occasion where you might bring somebody in. Uh, because he's unknown to the area, you might bring him right into a, an, an undercover position. Okay. I love the 21 Jump Street kind of, kind I got of deal. You. Uh, but it's very, very rare, and it's really high liability for a department. You, okay. you want a guy that's that's got some time on the street, and right. get seasoned, and get out there and work with other officers, have a sergeant over you, get his thumb on you, and and, uh, and hopefully by the time you know, you're know you ready to, to, to get more independent, you've, okay. got, you've already made your mistakes. So Bay, so Barry, Bay Area. How long did you stay there in Los? I was there until '95, and uh, and then I moved to Las Vegas, and uh, I moved there because I had an opportunity to open a business. So back in the environmental business again, I okay. had to make some money. By then, I had gosh six kids, right? And uh, I was on my second marriage. Second wife, okay. yeah. Great. And uh, moved to Las Vegas. I opened up a business. Uh, did real well with it. Stayed in law enforcement just as a reserve officer uh, while I was there. And then uh, in 1999, I sold my business and bought a helicopter because mm-hmm. I'd always wanted to fly helicopters. And my idea was, since I was a reserve deputy, that I'd go back to the sheriff's office and provide this helicopter okay. uh, for actually looking for marijuana in yeah. Northern no California. Mm-hmm. And that's what it started as. And, and I built hey, that. Into hey, there, a, there's some out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you know you know the Golden Triangle pretty well, right? I, I do. Okay. I worked all up into Napa Valley and to, to Butte and, and, uh, and uh, Calaveras County, Amador County. I, I did contract work up there. And I really was building a business where I was providing helicopters for small agencies and and they would hire me for every start off with just do a marijuana abatement. Yeah, sure. And then it eventually got into where we were doing uh, search and rescue. We were doing a little bit of everything. And and I actually got my first federal contract in 2002, uh, looking for Elizabeth Smart, the girl that was uh, kidnapped up I here. I remember in Utah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had five helicopters on that contract with the federal government. And then from there, I started doing more and more federal contract work. Uh, and eventually they uh, offered me a position uh, with the federal government. I, I, because I'm Native American, I'm Cherokee Indian, also Irish, so you know, I shouldn't drink. Um, glad, <laughs> glad you never started. Yeah. But anyway, they, they'd offered me this position. My, it was originally going to be that I was going to develop uh, law enforcement, a federal law enforcement on Indian land and also include air support, helicopter operations. Mm-hmm. Timing was terrible because that was, uh, I sold my business in 2007, uh, the end of 2007, and uh, went started working for the Department of the Interior in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, and that was right when the new administration came in, the yeah. Obama administration, and they just, they pulled all our money. Mm-hmm. And so I was told that, you know, wait it out for four years, mm-hmm. and I, I worked as a detective, 
uh, on Indian land for the uh, Office of Justice Services. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a major crimes investigation. Which is, when you say major crimes investigation, that's murder, rape, kidnapping? Yeah, there's there's 16 crimes that, that um, tribal police do not handle. Okay, so tribal, about, tribal police are basically misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. And then once it gets above the misdemeanors, that it used to go to the FBI. Right. And after 9-11, they moved those officers, those FBI agents over to Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And so the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Department of the Justice Services, which is part of, the, everything's under the uh, Department of the Interior, they started bringing in their own investigators. Okay. And I, I was one of them and okay. ended up as the acting bureau chief uh, for one of the, the Shoshone tribes, which okay. is uh, up in Utah, Nevada. Right. Um, and I did that for, for quite a while, actually. I actually moved to Texas and still Went back and forth because mm -hmm. I was administrator. I could do a lot of work from Texas. I sure. had to go back and forth. And, um, I enjoyed the work. It was a real eye opener. I got to, I got to really see, you know, the Native American culture, uh, and that's a different culture when you get those those Western tribes versus sure. the tribes out here. Sure. But I really got to. I learned a lot. Um, and uh, finally, in 2014, I decided I was going to get my Texas peace officer license not commute anymore, mm -hmm. go to work here in Texas, and I did. They made me go back through the academy, mm -hmm. even with 20 years of experience. Uh, at 48 years old, they made me go back to the academy. They don't they don't accept federal officers in Texas. That's that's wild. That Texas that Texas if you're a Texas peace, you can't be a federal peace officer and be a Texas peace. You got to go back through the academy. That's right. That's so right. at 48 years old, what was that like? What was that like going back through and running with with young guys that were in their mid early 20s uh, kind of you know, guys? At first, I, and I, I fought it, and I, I tried going around and finding somebody that would give me a waiver. And my wife finally said, "I, you know, I coached the wrestling program, and so I'm at 48. I was still in a, a good enough shape to go through the academy." And my wife finally said, "She goes, I think you'd like it." And she's right, I did. I enjoyed it. I was president of the academy. Uh, one of your local officers here in Kerrville, also uh, uh, Jerome Ince, mm -hmm. um, nice kid, real nice kid. And he's been here now for what six years since we've got the academy. But he was one of the guys in my academy. We no had, kidding. We've, we've stayed in touch, been right. good friends ever right. since then. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's uh, that's that's what I did, and and uh, got my license. Went to work out in uh, originally Gonzales County. I was a commander for a department out there. We kind of built a department that had fallen apart. And then uh, I was recruited into the local county as a as a criminal investigator. Mm -hmm. I worked uh, for Gonzales County for quite some time, and then eventually moved to Guadalupe County, where I'm at now. And I just accepted the position as a chief marshal mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the city of Santa Clara in Guadalupe County. So okay. it's a new city. I shouldn't say it's a new city. It's a city that's been there a long time, but they've just recently started developing and gated communities and mm -hmm. and so forth. And so they they want their own police department. And so we're setting that up as a marshal's office, and, nice. and I'll run that. So you get to kind of set it up the way you want. I do. I do. I'm actually working with the, the state right now to get the agency licenses done while I, I'm still a detective for the one of the neighboring cities. Um, but I'm working to get all the licensing done, and we should have that up and running and guys hired and, and within the next 60 days. So as a detective in the state of Texas, do you – do they and, and I just have very little knowledge of, of the inner workings of law enforcement. I mean, I, I, I Cody and I have both been sober for a couple of years, but I think we spent more time uh, on the Ob other side, like you were talking about. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so the way it works is pretty. I, I, I don't understand it. So, as a detective, do you are there are there certain things that you are responsible for investigating? I mean, or or, or is it? run the gamut how does that work it, it depends on the size of the department okay so i live in the city of new braunfels and okay. my son's actually a police officer there 
And so the, a city, New Brunswick size, they got 120 officers. They got a good size, uh, what they call CID, which is a criminal investigation division. Um, that they would have the ability to really say, listen, this guy's really good at this, and this guy's really good at that. So when they get a certain sure. crime, when I worked in the Bay Area, California, I was a sex crime investigator. Right. Um, it was rare for me to get crimes that weren't sex crime related, and I had a lot of crimes against children. That's what I specialized <sighs> in. Um, and. And so, you know, and, and for a guy who's got nine kids, you know what I mean? It, that's it's, you know, you know what's interesting about that is that when they when they first brought me in mm-hmm. uh, as an investigator, I, I was on a vehicle recovery task force, which is a cool job, you know, mm-hmm. catching guys yeah. stealing cars and chop shops, and and I thought, man, this is the the ticket, right? And then uh, and then when they once they they disbanded the that task force because we'd done our job, they told me my option was to move into sex crimes or go back to patrol. And, uh, you know, well, yeah, you only have to be in sex crimes for six months. And I thought, well, I can do anything for six months. Yeah. So they sent me to a special school. And it ended up being, I didn't want to do it because I knew it was going to be crimes against children. But it really is the most satisfying, I think, in law enforcement thing you can do. Yeah, because, because you're putting real criminals in jail. Well, and, you're, and they and really you're, do go to jail, and they really do stay there. Yeah, you and, know? and you're you're truly protecting people that are innocent. That are that, innocent that and need vulnerable. To be, yeah. and, you right. know what I mean? Really, like... Those fuckers, those those fuckers, they need to be. You know what I'm saying? Right. As there's far, no as, cure for them. No, there isn't. Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. It's like there's a couple of things. There's medical castration, right? Right. Yeah. But literally, and you know this as well as anybody else, that those guys don't fare very well, especially in places like San Quentin or, no, you know no, what I mean? No. I know in Louisiana, Louisiana, Huntsville, Angola, all the big, you know, big prisons around, they don't, I mean, guys like that don't fare very well. They don't. And I, I literally have put people in jail for 100 years, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, multiple rapes, multiple uh, molests and so forth. Um, and it, and there's, it runs the gamut. I mean, I've had guys who are the, you know, literally some of the worst people you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. And I've also had guys like, you know, the city manager of the city I worked for, I end up uh, working the case against him. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it, all these, these guys that have these issues, um, they typically, like I said, they're not going to get cured on their own. They're not going to get cured. Um, and when they're, when they're molesting children, I think that the only option in this case is to keep them away from people. people. Yeah. That's exactly right. Did you ever notice I'm any? Did did, yeah. did you ever notice any patterns in like those guys' backgrounds? I mean, obviously they they have different. You know, they're coming from different walks of life now. A city manager versus you know some guy living in a, a trailer park selling meth or whatever it is. I mean, but but did you ever see any any patterns in like their background and where they came from? It's somewhat. Um, it's or or, or, or things that happened to them yeah. is so really what I think I'm, what Will's probably trying to ask is, is you think, do you feel like in your opinion, professional opinion, yeah. is it learned behavior at all or is it is it genetic abnormality? Yeah, nature, nurture. It's a bit of both, I think. Yeah. Uh, because okay. there's this, there's this uh, arrogance um, that is very, very common. Not always, because sometimes you get guys that are very recluse and you'll have these issues with them as well. And so that's, it's something else that's driving them, obviously, this, yeah. uh, this, the fact that they feel like they're, they're not part of society and, and so forth. Um, but more commonly is this arrogance that they are uh, above others and that they are, others shouldn't do these things, but they should. Um, a lot of times they'll, they're, they're the first ones to stand up and protest everything else. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. Almost an elitist type mentality. So it's like it, socio- exactly. sociopathic tendency, you yes. think, narcissism, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they just feel like they're, uh, they're something they're special about themselves sure. and that they, and therefore they're kind of exempt from the rules of right. society mm-hmm. and, 
and uh, I'm sure thought, lots of justification and oh, you, uh, you, there, there is. Yeah. You'd have to. You know, I mean, it, I mean, guys like us can't get there mentally. You know what I mean? It's like I can't. There is no amount of justification or rationalization that I could put into my mind to make to think that that was okay. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So sure. it's like I, 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 I think there's probably a lot of those social those kind of guys that that are sociopathic, but they're going to justify it and rationalize it and say, okay, I'm going to do this because of this. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Some of that they, stuff. They, that... they really, truly believe, and we have these conversations. I Most of the time I get a confession, and we have the conversations about the King Solomon, you know, the, the guy who wow. had all these concubines, and these were 13-year-old girls, yeah. you know, and hundreds of them, thousands of them, and wives, and it was okay, and he was still exalted and loved by God. And, and so they put themselves on that. There's the justification that, yeah. I, you know, this desire we have didn't come as God-given, you know. Yeah, right. that so, yeah. We have this propensity right. to... to uh, God uh, made me this way. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and we're supposed to procreate, and that's what I, you know, I'm saying. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> uh, yeah. That just drives me insane. So when, you, let's, when, let's, you, when, you, when you sit in those rooms with those guys and you're, and you're trying to get a confession out of them, is that, would, would that generally be a heated conversation or were you talking calmly yeah, like no, the nor, nor no, yeah much, much different so again um there's a you don't interrogate someone who's a child molester okay. you you interview them it's a cognitive interview and because um there are there's probably guys listening to this that are that guy and now giving always some secrets but there it cannot be a it's it's a crime that uh is the worst of the worst but they can't feel that way Right. Or they right. won't talk about it. Sure. You, you so don't you want you to lead them. You lead them with leading questions. Well, they're not capable of. Right. They're not capable of that empathy. That you're not going to yell at them and get them to nope. feel bad about it. They're right. not. They're just going to recluse if that's the case and, and shut down. So you have to pretty much go along with like that. I, I use the. I bring up the King Solomon thing on. Right. Uh, because I say, listen, we all have these desires as men. Um, that's why we procreate, right? right. But. There's a line that society drew 200, 300, whatever it was, when to say 200 years ago in the United States, and they, they pick a number and said 17, you know, in the state of Texas, 18 in the state of California. That if you cross the line and you and you go after and you fulfill your sexual desire with with this number, which somebody pulled out of their ass, um, then you now are a you know a terrible perverted person. And most guys who who have those desires will agree with you immediately that yeah, that number is just arbitrary. Right. You know, somebody chose it. Um, what is the real number? Some girls are, are you know, mature at 15 and some are mature at 13. And, and, and typically I'll get down and start talking about the age group of whoever he's actually molesting. Right. It is tough when you start talking about, you know, five, six-year-old yeah. girls oh, because God. how do you oh, justify that? Right. Yeah. Other than now we have to agree that there's a sickness and that he has it and that he's going to have to figure a way out of it to, right. to, to get rid of it. And really the only way out of it is to be locked up. And so here's a, here's a question that, that gets a lot of people's hackles up. What, uh, so what percentage via race would you say, let's say just like white, black, Hispanic, Asian? Wow, I would say personally. I mean, yeah, yeah. the cases you've worked. The cases I've worked are predominantly white. Yeah, okay. I, and, I've, and I've always noticed that. Um, I, I dated a girl in, in college that was a... Um, uh, cr uh, criminology major, I think. Uh, I remember exactly what the term was, but she was having to study serial killers and mass murders and things like that. And, and it was it was major the majority of it was white men. Yes, I, number two would be Hispanic. Um, I, I a large number of Hispanic, but I, and it's it is close. That you know, there's a close race behind that. But come to Texas, 
I'm probably 50 50. You know, mm -hmm. as California, was right. more white than, than sure. others. But, um, and some of that's a culture. Again, yeah. some sometimes you get into like the Hispanic culture is that very closed. Yeah, that huh. they they don't believe they don't look at it the same as maybe we do here because they're the the culture of the way they were raised, the way they grew up, and what's normal maybe or had been normal in, in Mexico. Um, or just a closed society as far as, as it goes with, with law enforcement. I think that has a tendency to be something r that runs along race lines. And, and, and by no means do I am I trying to pick sides or say anything negative, but, but I feel like the, the, the difference is, in the, is a cultural thing for authorities as well as it is a cultural thing the way that the people are. I agree. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And, and I, you know, a lot of people, uh, when I talk about law enforcement, they assume that because I'm in law enforcement that I'm always on the side of law enforcement. I'm not. Sure. Um, there are lots of times when uh, I, I look at some of the things that, are, that law enforcement officers do, and it makes me ill like mm -hmm. it would somebody else. And, and even sometimes I just think it's so unreasonable. That yeah, well, I mean, and that's something we, you know, let's let's talk. I mean, we've got some time, and this yeah. is, I mean, obviously, sure. what's going on in the world right now. What do you think about that? What do you, I mean, let's get some. Get, what do you think about the defund the police, the Black Lives Matter, the all? Of, I mean, just you know, you so don't I, have to, buddy. You yeah. know, and I am I am a believer that the Black Lives Matter should not be in capital letters, and I'll agree with it. But when you put in capital letters, I don't because the difference between saying that Black Lives Matter, my grandson's black, mm -hmm. I agree, but I also agree that all lives matter. When you say you know the BLM and it becomes this Marxist group of people that is a political push for right. violence and anarchy, what's their cause? If if they're not, I don't truly believe that Black Lives Matter's cause is to keep Black people from being killed, or they would be in Chicago and they would be in New York and they would be, you know, gathering these youth up and and using this billion dollars that they've got they've taken in donations. To, to educate these kids and get them into programs yeah. and get the fathers into the... And they're not doing that. And so they have a hard time selling me that, that that's their agenda. It's not. Um, I believe it's an anarchy agenda is what it is. Um, the other side of it is, I think that when I look at some of these cases, the most recent case where the guy you know went to the car and he got shot in the back, that's happened before. And I think that when all the smoke clears, they're going to say... He's probably not a guy you want to make a martyr out of. First of all, because of his background, I I know he's got a he's a sexual uh, deviant deviant, and and so I personally have an issue with that. Um, but I also look at the way that he handled his confrontation with law enforcement. Yeah, and I think that he escalated something that didn't need to be escalated. Um, now the other side of it is you take George Floyd, and so the officer. Yeah, there was some bad judgment used there on the part of that officer. We all, the law enforcement officers I work with, were all like, God dang, man, get off of the guy. Yeah. There's plenty of you there um, that you could have handled it. Now, what we know now is that George Floyd had enough fentanyl in his system that he was going to die. Um, and he put that there. Yeah. So so there's you gotta you got to throw all those contributing factors into it and go, yeah, I think the cop screwed up, but we can't give 100% of this uh, on, on the, this cop as much as... You know, when I first seen it, I, I was I was right on board. Yeah, and I and I and I might I might have some people hate me over saying this. I don't know. I I think it even it, it even may go back further than that. I mean, I I personally believe from what what I've read about history that I think I think the the black community has been denied some opportunities. Oh fuck yeah! Over over sure. over you know many many decades, and I yeah. think some of that stuff has gotten better. But I think. I think blaming the police for this, uh, I think blaming the 
blaming the black community for this. It's like if you if you push and you force people and you deny them opportunities and you and you push them into a corner, it's almost like a natural reaction to turn to violence and crime and 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 things and and obviously like we all have to take personal responsibility for what we do at some point you know that that comes into a that, that, that's important um but i think as a as a community they they were kind of squeezed into this position and now you've got something like i'm gonna mess the statistic up and i really should know this doing a podcast it's something like uh 70 of violent crimes are pers- are, are committed by seven percent of the population which is black males yeah and 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 as a police officer how would you not it, it whether it was if it was redheads that were committing 70 percent of the crime <laughs> then police would react differently around They'd be at my red- house all the time because yeah. i love redheads yeah i, I mean but yeah. but but, yeah. but you know what i'm saying it's it's blaming yeah. blaming the police for this of course they're gonna have a tense uh more more cautious sometimes um sometimes incorrectly probably overly used approach to african americans that that are that have been squeezed into this position and are now responsible for 70% of the violent crime in in, in the united states I, I i i don't i don't think you can blame either party in that situation we have to look at our entire culture and say okay what did we do to force these people right. into this situation where they've they've had to turn to this and the cops reaction to it to me I mean, not not in those particular cases. I think obviously what happened to George Floyd is horrible. I think he was, you know, I think that guy should have absolutely either had better training or he should have, uh, you know, I don't know if it was personal. Hopefully, all that stuff will come out. Um, that wasn't the way to handle that. But I, but I think as as groups to blame African Americans for this, to blame the police for this, I think there's a bigger thing going on. There, here. there is a bigger thing over, over the last fifty years. The, the statistic, years. and and we're going to let you talk because. We don't want to talk about ourselves, and we don't give a shit about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the statistic I loved that we talked about the other day was the middle-class statistic. Yeah. You know what I mean? The middle-class yeah. statistic. So if you graduate high school, don't have children out of wedlock, right, and take a job, any job, right, 90%? I think, it, I think, that, I think that's a statistic I read. It's 90% chance. That you're solidly middle-class. Right. Solidly middle-class. So it's like... True. You know, strong family from strong family foundation, right? Education, whatever level that you aspire to. I don't give a shit if it's high school, college, master's, PhD. I got some buddies that are PhDs that drive me crazy, but <clears throat> but anyway, whatever you strive to, right? And of course, I I my first daughter was born before my first wife and I were married, right? Right. And you know that happens a lot in a lot of, but we end up getting married. You know what I mean? And we took fairly menial jobs when our kids were very little. You know what I mean? Yeah. She she had two degrees and was able to get a good job and I took a job fucking cutting over dead cattle for a living. You know what I mean? Post doing what you, know, you gotta do to but eat. doing whatever yeah. you know what do and you know, I uh, learned to speak Spanish because the only guys I worked with were from Guadalajara and it was like we worked together, we ate together, we butchered cattle together, we that's what we did. You know what I mean? So sure. you know, uh, you know, we actually were on a doctrine crew so we didn't butcher and we cut up cut open the dead ones figured out why they died that really? yeah so so let, let's get but, back to, but, let's... but uh, one, one more thing about that the, but but here's here's something that I've thought about a lot lately and that's it, it, I feel like it's easy for us to say all you got to do is graduate high school and not have kids before wedlock and 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 <laughs> right, right. and yeah, get a job yeah, exactly. but 
the, but the problem is, is that you and I both had dads that were around mm -hmm. to teach us that stuff. I, yeah. You know what I mean? No, I and, it. and so, so when I, when I, when I look back at my life, I think there was, um, I had guidance in a way that a lot of people didn't have, mm. you know, and, and, and maybe, um, does that make sense? No, I you agree. No, I agree with what you're saying, and I think that the breakdown of the family unit is is probably yeah. a, one of the biggest you know biggest downfalls to our society as we see it right now. Uh, so, you know, so so here's my question: yeah. what what do you think we? How do we get out of this situation? I mean, I'm that's the you, thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. First, you got to recognize how you got into it. So, I my belief is that we really are a product of our environment, and we really are the sum total of the people we spend the most time with, and so. I'll give you a, a, one of the best eye openers I ever had was when I first went to work on a, I was, my job with the Department of Interior was to go to an Indian reservation that had a tribal police department and they had nothing but problems with the tribal police department. They had literally did a drive-by shooting on their office. And when, when you say they, who do you mean had, had problems with the, the... The BIA was having issues with the, with the Bureau Native of Interior Americans, was, okay. the, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and, Indian Affairs, and the Native Americans didn't like them, and, and they were having high crime. It was just, it was out of control, the drunk okay. driving, the whatever. And so I went up there the first day, and, uh, and I was going to go meet with their, their new chief of police who had brought me in, and our job was we're going to convert this to a federal police department. And I walk into their tribal building, and I walk in the tribal building, and, and they're part of the Shoshone tribe, and they're a specific tribe. That, and this is up in the Utah and Nevada border, and this is up at like 7,000 feet elevation. And you walk in this building, and it was awe-inspiring to look at all the photographs they had of all these strapping men that were, I mean, just, I mean, these guys are Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, they were yeah. big, strong, strapping men from, you know, these pictures were 50, 60 years ago, sure. and they literally got a mountain lion, you know, around the right. neck that they'd killed, and and uh, and then the stories you read about, they were the last stand against the cavalry, 130 some odd cavalrymen wow. that went missing on their land and were never found, and they were just a proud, strong people that made their living. Uh, they were hunters, and so today, that same society, that same group that I had to do presentation after presentation for. Um, they have a, about a 95% unemployment rate. They are morbidly obese. Anyone over the age of 30 years old was obese. The number one reason that we attended a death was from diabetes. Um, and there were people on, many, many people that were, that were, had been drunk. And, and when I say drunk, a different kind of drunk than I know, they literally wake up in the middle of the night and drink, right. and wake up in the morning and drink. They just never sober. They don't work. They are taken care of by the government, and so they've 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 signed these treaties many many years ago. They get a check every month, and uh, and they spend it two or three days later, and then they're broke and starving until the next check comes. They get a stipend check at the end of the year. They go out and finance a vehicle with their stipend check, and then the repossession guys are banging on our door saying, "Hey, can we come on the reservation to repossess these cars?" We we couldn't let them. Right. Um, we're like, well, hey, you yeah, should have sold it to them. You knew better, right? Um, and they literally just leave these vehicles sitting along the road. They embezzled money from the government any chance they could. They didn't like us. They didn't like each other. Um, they didn't like pretty much anyone. And so I look at the society and I go, how did they go from, from again, these guys that were on the wall mm -hmm. to these people now who it's hard to have a conversation with? Um, they And I, they just... 
They were hateful people. Um, it was a miserable place to be for them and for us. And the way they did it is because they had no reason. They didn't have that job. They, you know, go out and do whatever you got to do to make a living. They didn't have that family unit anymore. Um, they were completely socialized. And it really is the, a picture of what happens when a community becomes socialized to the point where they don't have pride in themselves. They don't have self-esteem. They don't, it was, yeah. it was a and when you say socialized, you mean socialist. You mean like... Like the government took care took of everything. everything. So yeah. it was like a, yeah. So it was so bad sure. that but, we had a spade and neuter program where we we're going to spade and neuter their animals for them because they were running amok. Mm -hmm. No one showed up. And so we contact the supervisors in Washington and said, hey, you know, we got this program. We had this veterinary uh, office came up, mobile vet. Not and a they, person and so the up. solution was give them $20 for every dog they bring in and $10 for every cat. And we had them lined up as far as you could I see. I bet you did. And they said, don't do it the first of the month. Make sure it's mid-month when they don't have any money. And they were rounding up dogs and cats that weren't theirs that were already spayed and neutered, and we were told to just give them the money anyway. So, you know, and that's, you that's a couple, that's, but that's like two problems, obviously. It, it, it's the government continuing to feed into that that's yes. broken system, right. right? And it's what happens when you take and decimate somebody's culture completely. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? That's a that's like a double whammy. Uh, you know what I mean? Right. It's like a double penetration. It's like you're you're getting screwed twice. It's like the government continues to feed into a system that's broken, and right. and obvious. It's obvious to anybody who looks at it that it's broken. And when you take somebody's culture that they've lived for thousands of years and decimate it overnight, right? Within within thirty years, you know what yes. I mean? Well, it was longer, but really it's about thirty years. You know what I mean? Right. And decimate that culture to where they can't. Can't hunt. They can't do the things that they did. They can't move around freely. Whatever that is, and that's gone away, right? How do people react? Right? You get pushed into a corner, yeah. and it's either you you fight, right, or you run. And drinking and drinking is a way of running away from your problems. So sure. it's the same, you know. Yeah. It's they a, became sheep. They really did. I mean, they they literally went from the from these you know sheep dogs to sheep over over a period of these years. And they, I don't know if there's a path back. When I look at 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 that, I think, how do you bring them back? Because the, the, the children are resentful sure. of everything and everyone and feel like they are owed something more than they get. You know, So they're getting, they're, and they're being given this stuff, but they feel like they want and need and deserve more than that. And now it goes back to this was our land and it was taken from us. And it was all yeah. of those you know, justifications why I am what I am. It's somebody else's fault. But we created, when I say we created that, the, I'm, I'm Native American also, okay. but right. the government created that by not allowing them, like I said, to have their culture. The state of Texas has a completely different culture to me than most any other state. Sure. Right? That the pride that they have in being here and the and Texas is, you know, should be its own country and, and you know, these, these are still, you know, patriotic, flag-waving, that. Um, and, I, and I look at Texas and wonder if, and I know you know people are moving here by the groves, and yeah. a lot of the Texans are like, "Hey, you know, leave your right. leave your problems at the door if you want to be part of this." Um, I wonder how long until the culture changes. Also, if the people that are coming here are attracted to this culture, then Texas will be fine because that's, people want to be part of it. But if the people that are coming here are just so unattracted to what they have now, and they want to, I'm worried that it's it. I'm worried that it's the latter. That, that you're talking about. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be a total bummer. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I think what it comes down to is just a personal um, 
you know, if you've got purpose in your life, if you've got, if you're surrounded by people that love you, that love you, it's like you, you, you take pride in those things and you, um, and I've been on both sides of it, man. I mean, I've been, I've been shooting heroin in a hotel room and feeling sorry for myself and doing all that stuff and then come out the other side of it too. I mean, it's like, I know what both of those things feel like, Sure. sure. Uh, but to take that and to expand it into, you know, an entire culture of people, uh, it's a sad thing. It is a sad thing, and, and the problem is, is it makes people apathetic in our political system. Okay, and I still and struggle with that. You know, it's like okay, it doesn't matter what I do, we're fucking screwed. You know what I mean? Right. And that, and and I think it's quasi by design that it's like that. It makes people apathetic and says, you know what? And I explained it to a guy, and I said this on our last podcast. It's like if I got to piss pick from lesser of the two evils, this is the one I'm picking. You know what I mean? Yeah. My views aren't really either of those views that are over here. And, <laughs> right. and my candidate, she barely gets on the ticket anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those situations sure. where we get apathetic. But and, and same thing, you know, the, the problem is, is not being able to sit down and have an intelligent conversation about those problems and issues and how to get out of them and how and what steps to try to take. Then it becomes, all right, uh, I don't agree with you. I'm going to punch you in the face. You're a racist or you're a Marxist, I'm going to fucking shoot you. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it's, it's, it's got to be one extreme to the other. Well, I think it starts with everybody sitting down and just talking, man. I mean, right. they've got, they've got to, not they, we, uh, myself included. It's like, we've all got to get comfortable with the fact that we're going to have to share the world with people that don't agree with everything we say. You know what I mean? It's right. just, sure. we got to be adults about this. And I think that's something that's been lost. So, I mean, so, 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 Given our current situation right now, and I and I, I understand if there's no answer. Really, like, what do you what do, what do we do? I mean, how what, how do you how do you see how do you see us coming out the other side of of the kind of social tension that we're in right now? I, I think that there is a silent majority out there. I do, um, and I think that there every major country every major power if you go back as far as you want to go back and look at the roman empire they don't they don't get conquered they implode right it comes from the inside and so i think that when the silent majority in the united states on, on both sides are silent majority um and I'm, I'm not saying there's a republican or a, or a or a democrat or whatever an independent i'm saying that there's people out there that really truly do know what's right and wrong yeah regardless of what they're political structures, when that side of majority, and if that side of majority, finally finds the leader that that they can say, that's what I believe, right? Yeah. I, I'm behind that guy. And when that happens, I think we can. We, we don't have that today on either side. <laughs> yeah, and I... And have I, anybody that that, that, that that a major group is going to rally behind right? Um, for whatever reason. You know, I, I look at guys, and I'll, I don't have a problem talking about politics, I look at Donald Trump and I said, as a, I think the country was in need of a businessman. I do. Is he the right businessman? On the business side, yes. If he would just shut up sometimes, right? Yeah. And and, and not embarrass some, because even the people that agree with some of the things, I don't agree with 100% of what he does, but I agree with a lot of the things that he does. I just wish he would do it quietly, right? Be the be a, be that CEO or be that businessman that people respect on every level. Um, and and then we'd have and we'd have more people that are willing to follow. I have friends of my wife who are conservative Christian, you know, and they were concerned about whether or not they could support him because of some of the some of his personality. 
not what he does, but the personality right. of the man. So I think if, if, if there is that person out there that has both the personality and and is willing to separate themselves from the, the, the truly the swamp on both sides of politics, and it's, right. it's there, if that person exists and, and is willing to have the backbone to take the beating they're going to take to put themselves out there, I think the country could rally behind somebody. And I think that we that the silent majority wouldn't become silent anymore. See, but I think that I think the system is designed to keep people that aren't a part of the swamp from ever getting that opportunity. You know what I mean? I mean, they they don't. I don't even think the Republicans like Donald Trump being in office. I mean, no. we, we, we've we've oh, got no. a. No. I agree. They don't. <laughs> we've got a, a family friend who I'm not going to say his name or what he does, but he's in Washington and he's involved and and he told my uh my father before all this my he was kind of saying you know what what about donald trump like what, what is this guy for real this is four years ago and his response was oh don't worry about it we can we can control him you right. know what i mean it's not going to be a problem we'll we'll get him to do what we you know we'll keep him in line and now four years later the same guy's going dude i don't know what to tell you this guy's <laughs> off the fucking rails and he, dude, uh, he is dude but he's doing sh- he, he, here's the thing the guy says he's going to do something yeah, dude, I just can't. But get he there. says so much. That's the thing. It's like he he can say ten thousand things and do like five hundred. He goes, "I told you I was going to do that. I told you." So you know. Yeah, but I, I and I, and I, and I don't I don't want to turn this whole thing into no, a, po- a political no, deal. Sure but not. but here here is something that you said that I that I absolutely think is is true. I think I think we've got, and I know it adds to my anxiety about all this stuff. I think you've got these extremists on both sides. Yes. The, the, the problem is they tend to be the most vocal people. Sure. And so it's like they, 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 this tiny little percentage of the population, they make it seem like, uh, you know, they, they're, they're just they're the loudest voice. Right. They're shouting from the mountaintops. And so it makes you feel like everybody on both sides is insane. And I do like what you were saying. I, I think there are silent majorities of reasonable, good people on both sides. Um, and, and, you know, we just got to. Get those people registered to vote. Make them vote. Yeah. So what was it like? Uh, what was it like? So you grew up in Northern California. Yeah. And that was when? In the when uh, I was born in '65. So, so you were born in '65. I, I was so during seven, the Ronald Reagan era. So, right. So yeah. okay. So '65, '75. You'd have been ten. I graduated so, '83 from. High so you graduated school. from '83. So let's say you're near 16, 17, 18 years old. That's late '70s, early '80s. Yeah. Right. Northern yeah. California. Yeah. Did you know they were they growing pot up there already? Oh yeah, oh yeah, like crazy. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> so, crazy. So it was nothing when you when you got the job when you, after you, you 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 know fast forward and you got the job flying over looking for you knew what you were looking for. Yeah, and it's almost you know it's almost a game. Um, uh, from my perspective, it was. Uh-huh. I I'll give you guys something that, that probably make me unpopular in the law enforcement world, but in I've started doing this in '89. I've worked patrol. I've done in my life. I've never arrested anybody for possession of marijuana. Right, because you know that the war on drugs is a bunch of bullshit. Right, okay. (laughs) Now, have I caught a lot of people with marijuana? I have. And my thing is always like, dude, just toss it, right? Same thing with beer. I don't arrest people. I never arrested a kid for, you know, minor possession because I used to be that guy. Okay. So, and all my friends were those guys. And I've never been a, you know, I've smoked marijuana a little bit in high school and I had a really bad experience. Uh, One time I went up a gondola and then smoked some, the biggest joint in the world 
uh, with some of the other guys at a wrestling camp. We were way up, way up on the top of the gondola, and I got so sick that I made a deal with God that I wouldn't do that anymore. Yeah. Let me live, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been there. I, I mean, I, I, I never, <laughs> and, I, and I am a bad, bad drug addict when it comes to opiates. But I never. I think it just affects everybody really differently. I never enjoyed marijuana either. Yeah, it was, was never. Tor- towards the end of my using, it just gave me hor- horrific anxiety. Yeah, and I just can't. I, that's with me. It was like a cold sweat. Con- and I kept saying, how much longer? And the guy that, you know, gave it to me is like, oh, a few hours. I'm like, how long has it been? He's like, like a minute. minute. Yeah. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is fucking going on forever. Please right? yeah. Let this, yeah. So, but I, you know, I, I drank my share of alcohol and I did all sure. lots of things that, you know, was the difference between me and a lot of people that didn't get caught. Um, or if I did get caught, it somehow got out of it, you know. And right. So, right. But I, so I don't believe that that these petty little things, I think they're life lessons. And so the law enforcement, I think, should play a different role. And the different role is that you're supposed to be the authority figure that, you know, you catch the kids with a beer, you make them pour it all out. You catch the guy with the marijuana, you you make him cross it on the road. I I had a kid I stopped a couple of years ago and I smelled it. You know, sometimes I pulled him over and I said, hey, uh, by the way, give me the marijuana. And I said, I'll I'll put it out here on the road. I'm I'm not going to charge you for it but i can't let you have it it's pretty strong he goes i don't have any i'm like come on man i said no don't put me in this situation yeah. i got a camera rolling in my car i got a camera here i said if you'll give it to me you're not in trouble for it. i'm not even going to cite you for it but i'm not letting you drive away with it either and he said man i'm telling you i don't have it i said okay i said so because i can smell it i have probable cause to search your truck and if i do search your truck and i find it at this point you will go, you to, are jail going to jail yeah. because that's my fu back to you for fu and me and and I said so I'll give you one more shot man one more shot you give it to me I swear to you we dump it on the ground he's like all right and he hands me a pickle jar and I mean not a little pickle jar <laughs> and it's completely stuffed full of buds to where you could barely get the lid on it and he hands it out the window and I'm like you gotta be shitting me it's a couple thousand couple <laughs> yeah. probably a couple thousand yeah, two, dollars two, worth two thousand. of marijuana he yeah. just didn't want to give it to you and I go all right. Here's the deal. I mean, I already gave you my word, but and I'm looking back at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how do I even get rid of this without being charged for cultivating? You know? I mean, you yeah. Know? And so we literally got out. We spread it all over the road and had him stomp it all out. And I'm like, you know, I'm probably going to get hell for it. But uh, but the point was, and he's like, well, it's still personal use, man. I just, I'm like, yeah, right. He just caught yeah. you on the day sure. where you happen yeah. to be heading home with your, you know, year supply. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but the other side of it is, you know, if the guy had been stoned out of his mind Friday night, driving like an idiot, I got no choice. Yeah. Right? And, Here's he, knew, the, and he knew that. Right. right. Here's the thing. Never in my life have I ever had that experience with a police officer. Really? Never in my life have I had a cop go, I can smell weed. If you'll give it to me and throw it out, I'm going to mm-hmm. let you go. Never in my life have I ever had that happen. Wow. The yeah. only time I ever the only time I ever got pulled over with, uh, and got let go was from a game warden. Right? Yeah. Because he stopped me when we were rolling a joint. And, uh, you know, we weren't rolling a joint then. We were rolling a joint, and then we went down this big hill and smoked it. And, yeah. and he stopped us because he thought we were spotlighting deer right. up on the road, right? And he, we got to the end of the road, and he, and he pulled us over, and he goes, and he goes, we had a cooler in the back of the truck. We drank all the beer already. And uh, he said, can I look in the cooler? I said, yes, sir. And he opened his cooler. I knew there wasn't any beer in there. He opened the cooler, and there wasn't anything in there. And he said, why are your eyes so red, son? I said, man, I got bad allergies. And he said, you weren't trying to spotlight a deer up the road. And I said, no, sir, we weren't. <laughs> I said, I just live right up the road. He said, get your ass out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's Yeah, he knew. Of course he knew. He but it was the only time I've ever had, I mean, any other time, 
I've never had that experience. Always surge, always, yep, if, if they, you know, always. So that's the thing. It's like you are are the exception to the rule with that. Do rule. you think? Do you, I mean, what what do you think? Uh, because because I'll tell you, my my I, I'm like Cody. I've had I, I had one good experience with a police officer, um, and it was actually when I caught some teen kids trying to break into my house. And the neighbors called the cops because I was screaming, screaming at them. To, they were, you know, they were jiggling my door, wearing hoodies, and I came out with a baseball bat or something. And this uh, this cop pulled up, and and we were kind of laughing about it. And he was like, "Shit!" He was like, "You should have shot him." Like he, and <laughs> right. I was just like, "Dude, yeah. I'm, we're not going down that road." But um, but yeah, I mean, I and I think I learned this later. I think y'all y'all flag people's. You know, if you if you pull somebody over and you run their driver's license, aren't those things flagged for different stuff? Yes, no. Even um, if you haven't so, been convicted of crimes. Yeah. So the the program that I use in my car, uh, if I stop you, as soon as I pull you over, I'm already running the license plate on the, and it comes up on the screen. And it'll say you have a history. Right. This right. vehicle has a history, and so if I click on the history, it'll show me every time the vehicle's been stopped and what the results were of that stop. So if I look at that and see, and it'll show who the driver was. Then I know before I walk up to the car that this driver was stopped and was cited right. or was arrested or was has a, a, a history. Um, and so when I get to the to, up to the front, same thing. I, I get the driver's license. I, there's no smell of marijuana. There's no drugs. But you go back to the car. You run the license or the driver's license. It again is going to say he has a history, and I can click and see what that history sure. is. If the guy's been stopped and he's got a possession charge, you know, he's got a meth possession, you know, with intent to distribute, whatever. Then it's a different situation. There's a very good chance that what he's got in that car. Now, to me, yeah, I'll go up and say, hey, man, you got anything in the car you're not supposed to have, and and uh, you mind if I look? And so, because if I don't, I'm not doing my job sure. as a police officer. Mm -hmm. So, I personally, I hate, I'm a, I'm a, a DRE, which is a drug recognition expert, uh, and so I had to go through all kinds of hoops to get to that point in the state of California is where I got certified. I had to go to a special school for it. I had to get void ired, which means questioned on on the Superior Court mm -hmm. by a defense attorney and qualified as an expert. But I personally hate narcotics. I hate everything about it. I don't like I don't like being in I don't like being involved in the vehicle stops around it. I wouldn't want to be on a task force. Um, I think it's a crime and I truly think it's a crime that's that's not a law enforcement. It's a law enforcement issue because of the theft and the and the things that go along with because it. Sure. It's because it's illegal. Right. Yes, and it's not be, yeah, not because the drug well, itself. But, but, because, but because of the, the, the murders and the, and the what theft and, the, and, exactly. and what they do when they're on it, but not the drug itself because we can't solve that problem. I mean, right. and to me, I, I don't want to try to solve a problem I can't solve in law enforcement. So Right, and well, and that's something, you know, I, you know, it's like obviously, okay, so Nixon comes in and makes a DEA, you know, War on drugs, right? Yeah. yeah. And and then you look at, at Europe and how they've treated drug addiction in the last ten years, you know what I mean? And and the success rate they've had, especially with guys like us who are who are ratchet drug addicts. You right. know what I mean? And they go, Okay, we're gonna do this harm reduction, which I'm not a super big fan of harm reduction, don't get me wrong, but they're giving you know, safe ejection side to the and they're decriminalizing this stuff. And it's like, you know, my personal views are very libertarian, which means, you know, if okay. you're not hurting anybody else, then legalize everything. You know what I mean? Right. And because it's the, you know, it's the guys pulling guns on each other, it's the robbing, the theft, the stuff that goes along with the acquiring of the drugs or the, the outcropping of people getting too fucked up and doing fucked up stuff. Right. You know what I mean? Which happens on Which, which happens on everything. It happens, happens on alcohol, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I just feel like, you know, that 
between the the failed war on drugs because it's obvious to anybody with half a brain that it's failed right to me i mean and i don't know how you feel and i'm gonna let you respond to that in a minute and and the prison industrial complex that we all know that costs forty five to fifty thousand dollars to house an inmate right 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 and big companies like wagon hut own the prisons and they get our tax money right to lock up a guy who had two and a half ounces of pot it's like Dude, when I pay as much fucking tax as I pay, I don't want it. I want it to go lock up that guy who was touching a kid. Right. I don't want it to go to lock up a guy who had too much pot. And so the shame of it is, and again, this is all my opinion. I can have arguments with law enforcement over this, but the shame of it is that the people that are most qualified to help people like that are guys like yourselves, and nobody will let you help them. Well, when I say no one will let you help them, they'll let you help them if they volunteer, right? Sure. On the, when the guy finally has the interdiction and and the family sits down and decides, hey, we're going to write you off if you don't come in. That's when you can finally get involved, but you get involved from a different level. Why isn't law enforcement, why aren't you part of the of fixing guys that I can't fix? I, I set, when I went to my DRE program, I sat across from a working addict. It was part of my DRE. I got to interview a working addict, and we talked for hours. Great guy. He was on heroin at the time I was talking to him. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm not high, I'm just better, right? I'm just getting well. That's all I'm doing is getting well. Okay. And, there. and yeah. so I said to him, I said, so here's my, the question I think we all want to know. Why do you do it? And he said, and this was to me, what an eye opener. He said, okay, the first time that I ever did heroin, it was a situation where I was with a group of guys and it was a peer pressure thing. And I'd done some other stuff. I'd done cocaine. And, and so I tried it. And he said, and literally, the feeling I got was 10 times greater than an orgasm. It's like a hug from God. He said it was amazing. And I'm like, well, hell, maybe we should try it. And so he said, I've never had that feeling since then. All I can do since then is, he said, so think about it like you think about sex. I said, for a man, when you have that, especially a teenage guy, and and you've got this sex drive that is just overwhelming, he said, right after you've had sex, you could say, I can live without that. I don't have to do that anymore because you just did it. He said, and so every time that I, that I fix, when I'm done, I think, that's my last time. I'm not doing that again. I, I don't need that. I'm better than that until I do need that, yeah. and then I'll do anything to get it. And he said, that's the, that's the problem is that it just it, it's so overwhelming. I couldn't even think about anything else other than I got to get better. And I thought, I've never looked at it from that, Yeah. you know, I can see it through somebody else's eyes before. And so for me, that was a big, uh, that was an aha moment, you know, for me. I was like, wow, now I get it. And I had a lot of more sympathy then when I was dealing with guys on the street that were, because in California, it's illegal even to be under the, like a, they call it 11550. If you find somebody on the on the street, pupils are blown Right, he's he's got all the. Actually, in this case, let's say it's heroin. So he's got the he's got the right pinned he's got the pin, pinned uh, uh, pupils. He's got tracks on his arm. He's arrest he's arrested for eleven five fifty, which well, is under the influence hold, of right? controlled substance. What's that? Do they put him under a psych psych hold or? No, it's a you're arrested. You're, you're criminally charged under eleven five fifty. So under the H and S code, the health and safety code, they don't do that in Texas, right? Yeah. If you got it in your pocket, you go to jail. But if you got it in your blood, you don't. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Whatever's got out of here. Um, but I, again, I, I don't think law enforcement, obviously, after all these years, law enforcement does not have the ability to fix this problem. Well, so, so and, and here's, here's where I'm going to agree and disagree with both of y'all. Mm-hmm. I, I, intellectually, 
I agree with everything Cody just said. I think you can, and 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 I think I think you can. You know, it was like the, the when they when they uh, did away with prohibition. It was like they cut the they cut the mafia's legs out from underneath them. You know what I mean? Capone and all those guys. They didn't they couldn't bootleg anymore. They were screwed. They had to find other ways to make money. But it, but it really cut their legs out. So I agree that if you decriminalized a lot of this stuff, I, th- I think that's the answer. Having said that, I would absolutely not be sitting here today if I hadn't gotten a first degree felony in Austin, Texas for right. selling heroin right. and and gone and stood in front of a judge that told me, uh, son, you're, you're, you're going to jail for five to 99 years. And then it was my first one, so it got dropped down, you know, and I had to wear an ankle monitor for nine months and, and go to treatment and all that stuff, and it landed me here. Right. But without there, there guys, I was, I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I was ready to die. You know what I mean? It was like, I, I, I wouldn't, there was no hope that I was going to get sober one day and that, oh, I'll quit. Those were all things that I felt in the first years of my using. But towards the end, it was like, I was just, this was just how it was. And it was sad and I was going to die. And so, so for me, it took real, no fuck around consequences for me to finally look at things and go like, dude, do I want to spend the next 20 years in prison? Or do I want to start doing things differently and and uh, taking suggestions from guys that you know I, I met? Um, so I don't know. I, I agree with you, but at the same time, without consequences, I don't know how guys like me get sober. I, and, and you I know what I'm that, saying? I get that. I, I get it, buddy. And I'm so glad that you're that you did and that you're here. Um, you yeah. Because the truth is, if I if I'd have had to pick uh, uh, guys that were going to stay sober, I'd. Have, said that you were not yeah because he was a piece of shit garbage when he got here Here, here's the other thing that you brought up that i I think is important and i've heard a lot of this lately and and from what i you know i have no personal experience with it but from what i see it it seems true it feels like police it, it feels like police are being asked to do a lot of things outside of enforcing the law being police you know what i mean we're asking them to be social workers and and to fix all these problems yeah that have that have nothing to do with being a police officer and 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 why can't we you know where is the funding to put money into programs like that to to have somebody like me or cody probably somebody with you know degrees that really knows what they're talking about not just jerk offs like us but they don't know to go talk to those people i I know honestly i'd choose you guys over the guy that you know, spent four years in a university, you know, and there's a place for them. There's a time and place for them. Yeah. And, and that's right. You know, uh, cops are getting asked to do, you know, you're going to send a, you're going to send a social worker out on a domestic violence call. You're a fucking fool. Yeah. You're going to get killed. Yeah. And you're a fool. Yeah. So I, I mean, it, do you it, have any thoughts about kind of what we were just talking about as far as like, I, I do. I, and I think that when you talk about, you know, like your situation, I think you're, you're more the exception than the rule. Um, If you look at every person that's ever been arrested for that felony and given that chance for rehabilitation, the the percentage of those that took the path you took is very small. My lawyer begged me to not go to sober living. He said, I've never had a client that went to sober living and got better. Because he didn't live with Cody fucking life, buddy. That's right. (laughs) Because he he knows that you're the the product of your environment and you get around people who are – who, sure. are, who are addicts and they they're not ready to not be an addict yet right so I think that the the intervention I've been involved in a couple of interventions where uh, families have called me and said will you come and because I knew the person sure and I sat down with them and I wrote the letter and I did the you know and I was I was part of that and 
knock on wood, right now every person I've been involved with is sober and has been sober. It I'm works. assuming Josh is one of those. Josh is one of them, yeah. Um, Fucking great was, kid. God, I love him. <laughs> he, so he, he's the yeah, best. A huge talent. Um, and so I look at that and go, that works. It, it, and I don't know how often it works, but I know that it's worked every time I've been involved in it where I look at the other side of all that I've seen and how rarely it works when yeah. law enforcement is you will or else. A lot of these guys, again, they cry in the back of the police car and they're going to change their life. Yeah. But when they get out, Oh, they're, no. done, they're done crying and they're not going to change their life. you know they find God they do all of those things sure. until they get out and then they go right back to where they were and hang out with the same guys they were hanging out with and they're doing the same thing a day or two later that they were doing before um, and then they're right back in the system you know, and like I said it's just a this never ending sure and the, the three people that I know you know the two women that are nearest and dearest to my heart and, and Will are the only three people that I know that that have really turned their life around after a big bust like that you know what I mean so it's rare you know that's uh and it, it you know it is what it is I think it's it's hard to it's hard to beat somebody into submission you know? yeah you, it is. you can you know what I mean it's yeah, obvious man. but it, it's pretty difficult to do so you didn't feel guilty flying around busting pot farms no because back then it, to me it was a game it right was a game. so okay. the, the, there's the difference is that it was a game it's like these guys are you know a lot of it's Mexican nationals that are in there working these farms and these are you know big grows and so forth and so the game is you know we're trying to find it and then try to get in and get it a lot of times we didn't even we weren't even able to make an arrest we literally because they booby trap these things we'd literally bring deputies in we drop them in the middle they chop it up bundle it we pick it and up never and see a person never see a person wow yeah, we haul it away um, and so so we hauled a bunch out of yosemite national park one time and they made us oh, instead of just picking it up with a helicopter and putting it in a truck nearby because they didn't want any trucks driving there they moved the trucks so far away that when we came back a year later there was a string of marijuana that went from where we okay guys so this is the part where the computer shut off and stop recording for a couple minutes. So big fucking surprise. Cody and I don't really know what we're doing here. I hate computers and shit just happens sometimes. But basically, uh, Cody asked Jerry some questions about what happened when he sold his multi-multi-multi-million dollar helicopter business. Jerry received some criticism in the media, and uh, he got a chance to respond to it right here. Thanks. For that, I was the golden boy. I got the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Um, I was on the Governor's Task Force, you name it. And uh, the minute I ran for office, all of a sudden I was the no good piece of crap that, you know, whatever. Uh, when I, and I, and I ran for constable here in Comel County, same thing happened. You know, all of a sudden they, they said, oh, this guy's a scam, he's this and that. In 2007, I had built that helicopter business, which started off just a helicopter business for drug abatement. I built that into a hundred plus million dollar a year company. It was a big company. Mm -hmm. wow. yeah. And uh, it was very big. And we were in, you know, 50 plus locations. In 2007, my daughter was born, um, and when she was, actually 2006, August 2006, and she was given a 0% chance of survival, not gonna live. And so I went from, I was running for sheriff at the time, and I was at the top of the world, you know, and thought I was pretty special. Um, and all of a sudden, I just took my feet out from under me. I'm standing in the hospital, and they're telling me to go say goodbye to her, and there's no way she's gonna oh. live. And, uh, and I'm, talking to the doctor, I'm like, there's not a life support system in the world. They said, well, she doesn't have any lungs. She was born with only a partial lung on the right side. And uh, and so they did, the, the, the second doctor that came in, we're standing there watching this baby die. And I said, isn't there an artificial lung? And they said, well, that's called an ECMO machine. And it actually, it takes all the blood out of the 
baby and it has to go through a machine the size of a wash machine. It oxygenates the blood and puts it back in. And he said, well, the, the problem with that is the closest one is at St. Joseph's Hospital in Arizona. We were in Vegas. Um, you can't get her there. And because Metaflight won't transport her unless they can stabilize her. And I said, I owned a Metaflight company at the time as part of my helicopter business. I'm like, well, we'll transport her. And they said, well, even if you did that, to get her on that ECMO machine, you have to sign a contract that says that in five months, you can't tie up that machine forever, but in five months, if they can't find a cure for what she has, which is, there's no cure for it, they said, then you, you're going to be saying goodbye to a five-month-old. And I said, that's, I'll take it. I figured that gave me five months to figure sure. something out, right? right? And at the time, I was making, obviously, good money. I had a big business, yeah. and I thought, I'll go buy myself an ECMO machine, <laughs> whatever. Um, so we flew her, and I say we, I called my guy that runs my Metaflight, he's like, Jerry, we your helicopters are not designed for that. You need a mobile neonatal ICU unit. Holy shit. He made a phone call to our competitor, who supposedly didn't like me. I never met the guy. And the guy donated his airplane. And they flew wow. up the daughter and took her down to Arizona. And six days later, they found out she did have her lungs. They were overinflated with blood, so they were invisible to the x-ray. So they vacuumed them out. We started a lung treatment. We were able to bring her home. I was in the middle of my campaign at the time. And, uh, and I made some deals with God uh, when she was dying and that I would change my life and change my priorities and I would sell my business and I would get out of Las Vegas because it is kind of a crappy place to raise a family. Um, so after that happened, I contacted my CFO and I said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good with selling. He talked to me about it before. I sold the company to a Wall Street investment firm. They came in in February of 2007 and we accepted their offer in February 2007. Um, and it took them from February until August to do all their due. They had to hire, you know, they spent a million dollars on attorneys doing all their due diligence, making sure the company was viable, that the assets were right and all that, because we owned a bunch of other companies too. Sure. August of 2007, we closed the deal. Now, we had a flight school as part of our program where people could learn to fly helicopters. And the way our flight school was structured, and this is, I'm thank God we did it this way, is that let's say you want to be a helicopter pilot. I'm going to ask you about that yeah. a little bit, but keep going. <laughs> so you come in, you say, I want to be a pilot. And we'd say, all right, here's the deal. If we take you from never been in an aircraft before to being a hireable commercial pilot, we got to have to get you your private license, your instrument rating, your commercial license, your flight instructor certificate, teach you how to fly turbine helicopters, teach you how to do long line. But in other words, the whole gamut. That's about $70,000 to do that, close to it. What we'll do for you is we don't charge you anything up front. You sign a contract. But after you graduate from our school, six months later, now you got to start paying that money back. Right? Mm -hmm. So we financed it through KeyBank or one of the student loan, basically. We don't get money up front. We got, once you got through the ground school or started your ground school, there's a portion of money that we get. And then once you get your private license, we get a portion. You get your commercial, we get a portion. And we get the last just before you graduate. You don't pay back until six months after you graduate, and then you, we would hire 95%, 90 or more. We hire those guys to come to work for us. Did they you become them? our flight instructors and yeah. our commercial pilots. Yeah, yeah. you train them. We pilots. know what they do. Yeah. So when I sold the company in August, and then uh, actually I sold it in February, but they closed in August. I moved to Texas. In February, the company I sold to literally just, you know, they closed down all the student loan financing and all that stuff was going on, Fannie Mae and all that. That company just shut Silver State, my company, down 
sold all, they'd already sold their major assets to some of their other companies because they owned other helicopter businesses, and they just shut it down. They was like, you know, screw you. The rumor then was that all these students were gonna have to pay, and they didn't get to finish their training. Well, how that, how is that gonna happen? I wouldn't pay if I didn't train. And so I literally went and sat down with the finance companies and we hashed it out and we argued and I hired attorneys and we fought. They forgave those loans. The only, so nobody who didn't graduate had to pay. If they had a commercial license already, then they could buy the commercial license, they could pay back for that, but at a super discounted rate. But if they had been to like flight school and they've been four months, three or four months into it, it takes a couple of years to get through a program. They've been three or four months into it and going through flight school and flying. They literally just walked away and that was the end of it. Yeah. But that took me from, they shut down in February of 07 and it took, I mean in 08, it took me until the middle of 09 to get that all taken care of to where nobody owed any money that didn't get through. During that time, I got sued. I had 28 lawsuits against me, major lawsuits against me. One of, but if you look back at these, one of them was a class action lawsuit from some lawyer in Southern California. He was just a piece of shit. He sent out letters to all these students and said, hey, listen, this guy's got deep pockets. Give me $5,000 and I'll represent you and I'll get you money even if you didn't pay yet, right? Even if you didn't. And so all these people gave him $5,000 and then the ones that didn't, he'd send them a letter and say, hey, if you want to join, we're closing this down in you know, a month. I'll let you in for 2500 And then those that didn't, he'd let him in for 1000 and finally 500 He took all that money knowing that this didn't qualify for a class action lawsuit because there's no damages. Nobody had paid anything yet. He immediately, he files in court. Court kicks it out, dismisses the case. He kept all the money. But in the meantime, like I said, all those months of them just, I was the bastard stepchild for all those months. I was the no good piece. So I, I went from being like this, you know, great guy, supposedly in Las Vegas, to be in this piece of shit that stole everybody's money, even though I didn't take any money from anybody. Um, when I was offered the job in 2009 with the Department of the Interior to stay with them and become a bureau chief, I was their acting bureau chief, I wasn't gonna take it because I was in the middle of all these lawsuits. And the guy that was the director that I was dealing with, he said, you know what, Jerry, if I were you, I'd take it. And the reason i take it is because you have to go through a background. They have FBI guys coming through a background. And you'll be able to stand up and go, hey, I just passed a federal background and was hired yeah. as a federal law enforcement officer. So if any of these things are true, how'd that happen? And so I did. It, it did two things. It got me back into law enforcement, you know, or kept me in law enforcement, I should say. And, and it also gave me a way to stand up and go, hey, screw you. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I can prove now that I didn't. Yeah. So in all these years, all that stuff, all out of all those lawsuits, two of them I settled, all the rest I won. Um, because nobody had to pay anything. Uh, the only two that I settled were when I sold the company, the company owned a bunch of, had leased a bunch of vehicles to Ford and GMAC. We had, you know, 850 employees, so we had vehicles all over the country. Um, and both Ford and GMAC, they came back even though I had sold the business, I was the original guarantor on the loan. Mm. And so they said, well, you st even though I wasn't the guarantor anymore from August on forth, they sued me, and then they sued employees of the company, including the fleet manager of the company. Well, you don't do that. I mean, that's not right. She didn't have no money. I mean, she just worked as the fleet manager. So in my negotiation with them, they dropped the lawsuit against her. I bought back some of the vehicles and made the cases go away. So I settled those two. Other than yeah. that, no. Wow. Well, so when you've got a $100 million company, it doesn't surprise me that people are trying to 
get oh, a get, get a piece of you. Attorneys, I'm telling you, I'm not a big fan. So why? Here, that's the question, buddy. With that, with what you made on that company, why in the fuck would you want to get shot at as a cop, dude? <laughs> I just don't. I okay. mean, so now, here's the best way I can explain that because I, I, for so long, I couldn't explain it. My dad loves to fish, right? So, and he's a cattle, he's a rancher, cattle rancher growing up, and now he's an almond orchard guy. He'll he'll spend way too much money on equipment, you know, fishing poles and boats, I'm and then when he finally gets to go fishing, he's preaching the got, choir here. He gets up while it's dark. He's freezing his ass off. He's got a dead battery. He goes all the way up to the other side of the lake. He gets a flat tire on the way up there. He gets in the lake. He'll go fishing all day and never catch a goddamn thing. And on the way home, all he's thinking about is when's the next time he's going to go fishing, right? So that's me in law enforcement. Okay. I have that. And I can't get rid of it. I wish I could. I keep thinking I can stop doing this someday. I just absolutely love doing it. Uh, it's not obviously never about the money. Um, I donated my salary back when I worked for the Department of the Interior, all but a dollar, because I had to be paid. So. Right. Um, but we were able to hire more guys because of that. Uh, I just love doing it. I love the... I even finally went out and got my private investigator's license and, and opened up a private investigative agency. Just did that. Just because I'm thinking, all right, so maybe that'll maybe that'll solve it for me. Maybe I can just do that and get out of law enforcement. I just don't think it's enough. I just don't, <laughs> yeah. Because I look at private investigators differently than I do law enforcement. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I got the private investigator's license because after I'd run for constable, I had a local attorney that had come to me and said, you know, if you'll get your private investigator's license, our law firm will give you the all the business you can handle. And uh, and I wasn't going to do it still. I was like, eh, private investigator, I'm not sure. And then a bunch of the guys that I work with, which are old-time cops that are ready to retire, mm -hmm. they're like, man, I'd come to work for you if you did. So I did. I went and mm -hmm. got the license, and I literally just got my agency license for whatever time it is now. I, I submitted everything I had to my final documents this week to Department of Public Safety to get my agency license. So Nice. So Will, be you, cool. got any, you got any flight questions? I man, I Cody and I have talked about wanting to. There, there's a there's a private airport out on the way to Center Point, which is just just kind of what south of Kerrville. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about that for a while about going out and maybe getting learning how. I'd probably want to learn how to fly planes. Honestly, I think that'd be more up my my alley. But what? So what does that take? I mean, if you want to learn, if you want to get the uh, just to, if if I'm wanting to fly like a. Cessna, so he and I can go shoot yeah. an elk in Colorado or something. What? How long yeah. does that take? Completely different. World. I'm both. I'm a helicopter and I'm a rotorcraft okay. and a fixed wing pilot. I learned to fly helicopters before I learned to fly airplanes. Okay. Um, airplanes are much cheaper to fly, much easier to fly. They have a propensity to fly. They actually Less like maintenance. Fly, right? <laughs> maintenance, yeah. Right. You can rent them, right? You can go down to the airport right now if you got your private license and they'll rent you an airplane for. Used to be you could rent one for you know thirty or forty dollars an hour. I don't know what they are now. Mm -hmm. uh, probably more than that but uh so yeah it's worth doing it, it it's easier to me easier to fly an airplane as easier easier than it is to drive a car you know the biggest issue you're going to have isn't about the airplane itself and about takeoff and landings and all that it's going to be dealing with air traffic control and knowing learning when all the when you're in the airspace yeah. and when you can do this and how to make an approach and those things those are the things you're gonna learn but even that is interesting you know it really yeah, is. so sure. I, I strongly encourage it um stay away from home-built aircraft I buried some friends that, are, that have built them. Those are like kit kit planes. Kit, kit or planes are not. They're just not. You know, it's yeah. You shouldn't be flying them. I mean, a home built airplane is for a guy who is a seasoned professional pilot, and he's got kind of an engineering background, and he wants to go build it. And I had a good friend of mine who is a nuclear physicist. Yeah. He's now dead. Um, we had the same conversation, and he's a great pilot. He's a super smart guy, 
and he just insisted that he could he was going to build his own plane and and he finally died in it um which is a, which is an absolute shame. Yeah. So same thing with helicopters. I don't encourage people to go become a private helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. I only think they should allow it. I think it should be you are either going to be a commercial level pilot or you're not going to do it at all, because helicopters do not have a propensity to fly. They're very difficult to fly. Um, they're very easy to screw up. They have they're no forgiveness, uh, especially these smaller helicopters. Um, and so it's not some it's not a hobby you shouldn't do it as a hobby did you read into any of the stuff that happened with kobe bryant recently hadn't hit that pilot been flying for a long time and, and they got into some clouds and and yeah. what, what did you read he got into uh, when he first did it and i i read a little bit about it i i've flown exactly where he crashed i've flown that a hundred times or mm-hmm. more you know i just fly back so and i've been in the in the inadvertent ifr condition inadvertent ifr so uh, instrument flight rules is when you are to a point where you can't see anything, right? You got a curtain out there, and so you have to revert to your instruments and fly off the instruments. So, mm-hmm. uh, inadvertent IFR means, damn, I didn't mean to get in this position. Right? Okay. I'm flying along, and it's kind of like when you're in the driving in the fog. You know, it gets kind of foggy, and then it's clear. It's foggy, it's clear, and all of a sudden, boom, you're in zero. Yeah. And you're thinking it's going to be any minute now. I'm going to come out of this. Well, you don't, and so. And that was in inadvertent IFR in Southern California. It's so easy to get into. There's a there's a saying for pilots that says, "Trust your instruments, not your ass," because you get this weird um, uh, spatial disorientation, where when that happens and you go zero zero, it feels like the aircraft is, especially a helicopter, it feels like it's rolling, and usually it feels like it's gonna it's like rolling to the left. Um, so you compensate. And it's not really rolling. It's not until you compensate. And when you do, you'll you'll invert it. And so when you invert the air, you won't even, people say, how do you not know you're inverted? You don't know, right, mm-hmm. until you hit the ground. That's how Kennedy died when he died in the airplane. He inverted and hit the, he thought he was pulling up. He thought mm-hmm. he was climbing. Yeah, and he was. Climbed right out of the ocean. Um, John Denver, they believe that's what happened to him also. Mm. Um, that was actually was, off the coast of California as well. He was drunk, yeah. Right. So, uh, but so what happened with, with that pilot, he was a, a, a seasoned pilot, but again, I've been in that, I've got 12,000 hours in helicopters, right? So I'd have lived in a helicopter. Um, I've been in a situation where, and I'm telling you, you gotta talk to yourself. When you get in those, when you get into that inadvertent IFR, and, you, and you've got to, you got to set, he had a, he was on a Sikorsky S76. He should have immediately turned that autopilot on, set it to a maximum climb, or in other words, get into like a 1500 foot per minute climb, know your terrain, Look at your GPS, know what's underneath you, and then trust the aircraft to fly out of it. That's what I that's what I did when I've done it in Southern California many times, mm-hmm. um, and I've done it in both helicopters that have autopilot, mm-hmm. which are rare, and helicopters that don't. And that will literally make you suck the seat right up your butt. Yeah. You just the whole time you're in it, you're just thinking, what an idiot you know I am for being here. Um, I got myself in this situation. I, we talk about it all the time about how you know, don't let this happen to you. But you just gotta, you just gotta talk yourself through it and yeah. trust those instruments and trust that artificial horizon and and believe what it's telling you. And then I I refer I have a little uh, uh, backup GPS that sits on my leg, and I usually will zoom that in and I'll get over a highway to where I know I'm over the top of a road, a highway. So you know, I'm not gonna fly directly into a mountain that way. Um, and then I start my maximum climb. I, I did it in, one time. It happened to me in uh, just outside of Bakersfield, and I was coming up the to Hatchapi uh, Pass, and it was nighttime, and I went inadvertent IFR and zero zero. And uh, you talk about scary. I mean, it's it was pitch pitch black, 
and I just climbed and climbed and climbed and I'm following the road and then you start getting I got up to like 12,000 feet and I'm still in it and I'm and it's nighttime and I'm thinking you, you know, start questioning your instruments at that point it, and, and, or, and thinking well where's the ceiling on this I mean I might never pop out now yeah. I'm going to get back down right you know? so um, and luckily we did. We popped out at like 13,000. And luckily I was in a Bell 407, which is a helicopter that you can get away with that. Mm-hmm. If I'd have been in a Robinson R44 or something, uh, um, I'd been screwed. Yeah. You know, it just it wasn't going to happen. So yeah. that, that's a good shift. I'm not saying it's a bad shift. Yeah. But it just doesn't have the capabilities back then. Now you can get those with autopilot as well. But back then you didn't. So right I've got a little helicopter now, and it's you fly it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. You have to fly. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and we see them a lot here in the hill country. There's a lot of game pilots, and and we see a lot of these little little rigs going up and down the road. And I just go, I couldn't, I couldn't. Pig hunting and whatever. Yeah, stay. Uh, now I don't mean this in a bad way, but like the R22 helicopter, I, the first helicopter I ever bought was an R22 Robinson. Um, today you couldn't get me in one. I wouldn't do it. So yeah. There's there's no room for error in that helicopter, and so. Why put yourself in that situation? Now, yeah. the other side, the R44, the four-seater, great aircraft. You know, it's got a lot more inertia. It's got a bigger motor in it. It's got, you know, they're fuel injected now. They're, yeah. you know, so, uh, completely different world. But, uh, no, you're not going to get me an R22 ever again. Huh. So, get up there and just scare the crap out of yourself. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, buddy, dude, <laughs> I tell you. Blows. I can only imagine you how much nervous you, just I, I, about can only, it. I can only imagine how much, how many times your butt is pumped into the seat. Like, literally... I've I've had that happen a, a couple of times in my life. One time I was wade fishing in in, in South Texas, and uh, I had a shark come up in front of me and like Jeez. and go like in for like in, literally in front of me. And it was like when I got back on the boat, my butt unclenched, and I was like, <laughs> I was literally scared. I, I can only imagine how many times you've really had oh, that happen. Yeah. To I've had my legs shake so bad that I couldn't hardly keep it on the pedal. Yep. Of the helicopter. And I'm, same thing, just making deals with God. Yeah. Like, I won't do this ever again if you'll just, and then you end up doing something stupid or right. later. But. I was driving down 281 once. I was, when I was 16 years old, I bought a 1,000cc crotch rocket, the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. And driving, there was a straight shot between my house and my high school and, and was, you know, I'd get on my bike and go 140 miles an hour to, and I still ride motorcycles. So I have no desire to go fast right. anymore. And I had to lock up both brakes one time because a guy pulled out in front of me. And I remember oh, you told me. <laughs> I just put my head down and I just waited. I was like, well, this is this is how this is going to end. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then I picked my head up and I don't know where that car went. I, he, I mean, he, he must have seen me and gotten out of the way because I was I was still, you know, tires down. But I was just wow. both tires full locked up sliding down the road. Worst. Yeah, I tell you what, Jerry, we sure appreciate Thank you coming you so in. Much, Thank you man. so much, man. This was really interesting. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, and, I enjoyed, and enjoyed meeting with you guys. To visit with well, you and, and, and I'll tell you this. Thank you for everything you've done for Josh. He really looks up to you, and I love that kid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've been, a, you've been a huge part of his life, it sounds like. So. Wow, he's a good kid. He's yeah, he his is. Family. I, I love his family. And, and his parents are great. Yeah. I've met them a couple times. Yeah, they are. They're yeah. Just all good people. So we, Thank you so much. This is fascinating. It was good to meet you. Good. Well, anytime. Um, well, yeah, and we, we may, you know, if something kicks off and gets wild or, yeah. or man, if you want to run for something, you're running for Congress later, you want to come back and see us, come back. We want, you know, and, but if something happens in, in society and, and we would love to be able to visit with you and have sure. you back on and, and 
get to visit with us and talk. Yeah, to I'd you. be glad to. And I've been, like I said, I've, I was at the Rodney King riots for God's sake. I was a cop back then. Oh wow! Uh, so, so I've got to see, uh, you know, the 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 good and the bad and the ugly in this mm-hmm. law enforcement thing. And and I've been everything from the patrolman to the administrator to the you know chief administrator. So I also got to you know see behind the curtain. Um, you think you think what's going on right now is worse than than yes. back then? Yes, yes it is. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, I think it, it it it's an anarchy right now. I mean, it really is. Yeah. What's happening is is very well. It's too well organized. To it's not random. There's right. there's there's way too much behind this. I mean, it's truly anarchy. I would love to to see our Department of Justice, if we could, or, or some way from a, from a neutral position, a true investigation into who these people are and who's funding this. And I think it would be an eye opener for everyone. Well, Rand Paul said it after he got attacked after the the, the deal, after the Bush's thing. He said somebody needs to subpoena these guys' hotel records and travel records, and we Absolutely. need to arrest them and subpoena that stuff and figure out where this is. I mean, yeah, this isn't random. No, it's this not is, random. It's and, like Benghazi wasn't random. This isn't random. No, and, <laughs> right. and the difference yeah. I think too in Rodney King the stuff and, and not to negate any of that at all but Bush Sr. put in three battalions of Marines if I'm not right mistaken because well, we, we have a co- I have a couple of friends that were actually active duty Marine when that happened were there yeah we had National Guard in, in Southern California mm-hmm. so I was in Northern California and I got the call that night and they're like hey you see what's going on on TV and, and uh, I said no and they said well get your riot gear and get down here and so <sighs> Buddy. We go down there, and then they said, you're going to Southern California. Of course, I was a 27-year-old kid. I'm like, rock on. And so we got to drive stupid all the way to Southern California, police cars as far as you can see in front of us, behind us, and high patrol. And we get down there, and they, they're like, okay, so you're not where you're from? Well, we're from the San Jose Bay Area. Oh, well, then you get to go to Long Beach and guard this parking lot. So we stood out there for days. Just nothing. Right. <laughs> nothing know? happened. We get the reports. Guys come by and tell us. And well, the National Guard actually shot and killed a guy you know, uh, during that. That kind of changed the way that the National Guard was used on those types of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at the Joplin, Missouri, the big tornado up there. Um, I worked for the feds during that tornado, and and uh, we used the National Guard, but they were very limited in what they could do. Yeah. So I was at Hurricane Katrina. You were. That's another thing. And I totally yeah. I blanked out. I, I got my notes, and I didn't even look at them on my phone. But what was that like? Was that just pandemonium? And it was just, crazy. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, again, all these lessons that, that, that you learn about people and government. We flew into to New Orleans, um, and we got there. This is before Katrina or after Katrina? Right after Katrina. Okay. So we got put on notice that, hey, you might be needed. As soon as they it started coming in doing damage, we were in the air heading from Las Vegas. I had five aircraft, and so five helicopters. I had a Super Huey, and we had to move some, you know, we're on our way. And so we finally get to New Braunfels, Texas. We land in New Braunfels, and they told us where to go. They gave us coordinates that we're going to land in New Orleans on an overpass. And we go down there, and we sit there for hours. And it was just the most – it was terrible. Not organized. We couldn't get help. We couldn't get fuel. We couldn't get – there was MRE. There was trucks with MREs that showed up. And we're like, well, let's load the MREs into the helicopter. No, you can't touch them. Not until you get permission. We're like, what the hell are you going to do with them? I mean, it's – if they got to go out to people, let's put them in the helicopter. We'll go drop them off. We had enough fuel to at least do that. Nope. And then they finally have a fuel truck that we find, and we said, hey, we're going to take the fuel out of it. No, you're not. Well, so we, we stood there. It's for, bureaucratic. It was terrible. Ugh. And so finally we called the guy that organized us, and we said, hey, uh, we either need to come home or we need to find someplace else. So he said, can you make it to Natchez, Mississippi? Natchez, yeah. Natchez. So mm-hmm. we said, sure. And I'll tell you what, 
that's a place. <laughs> so <laughs> they've made movies about that. So we fly into Natchez, and they swear us in as Mississippi sheriff's deputies for that county. And then we go from there to Gulfport. And when we get to Gulfport, they said, when you get down there, and the sheriff said, "You whatever you need, you just take it. Okay, so we flew into Gulfport, and there's nobody there. I mean, this is just... All evacuated. Oh, yeah. It, well, it was all wiped out. The, the yeah. water had come yeah. up, just pushed everything. Up. There's nobody. We were first ones, one of the first ones there. And so just as quiet as can be. Eerie. Dead alligators. I mean, I got some cool pictures. So, um, And so we get there, and we're like, well, we break into the to the fixed base operation at the airport. We break one of the doors down. We go ahead and get the radio systems. We set up the radios. We take one of their fuel trucks and we find all the five gallon water bottles and we're filling up the water bottles with fuel and then dumping them in the helicopters and wow. uh, here comes these two black suburbans and there we could see that they had lights in the grill and we're like ah we might be in trouble and so <laughs> they come pulling up they were from the governor's office and they're like hey anything you guys need uh, just tell us and it's yours you know we'll, we'll make it happen we're like well we can really use ground transportation and they said well there's a ford dealership about 30 miles inland if you guys want to go up there just take whatever you need and so we did we went up to Ford dealership and I mean it was just a world you cross that state line you went from Louisiana who couldn't wouldn't help anybody mm-hmm. we go to Mississippi and it was just the opposite they just those people were bent over backwards and they were all helping each other yeah. in Mississippi everybody was just the whole the communities that got together and they they had you know helped each other out made sure that people who needed medicine were getting medicine and so forth but then we'd fly into St. Bernard Parish and you know they're shooting at the aircraft you know of course we had read about it we watched that on the news we didn't know they were actually shooting at us how would you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, but you know it was just amazing how you you put a a line there between two states and you have two completely different cultures and completely different ways of fixing it well there's a big ass river between you know yeah well, the people of Mississippi were about helping each other and fixing it. Mm-hmm. People of Louisiana yeah. were about, when are you going to fix it? Right. Yeah. Right. That right. was the difference. Yeah. There you go. There you go. What do you? I mean, what do you say, Will? That's uh, that's kind of the way of the world. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or fucker, you're. I don't have any boots. That's uh. Yeah. That's how I feel. Remember, there was no handouts when this country was built. Right. No. No, and I think Will and I's fathers both raised us to not give us any handouts. Yeah. That's why we are the men we are today. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was a lot of figure it out on your own. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful for it now. Me yeah. too. You know? Yeah. yeah. So. You, you, had your, you had your neighbors and your churches, and that was about all the help you were going to get. Yeah. And all of them were going to help you help yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was about well, it. but I think, that's, I think that's hard to see. I look back on it now and I'm grateful for the way my dad was with me. Uh, but but, but when you're in it, you're just pissed. And I got, I got, you know, my dad makes a lot of money and he's an attorney and it's, you know, (laughs) well, God, you know, you could send me a hundred dollars. Doesn't mean shit to you. And you don't understand. And and then when you get, when you get past it, you get to the other side and you start living for yourself and taking care of yourself. Then you go, okay, no, it makes sense. And I, and I wish that money was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I wish, you know, I wish that for a lot of people that are struggling right now that. Oh, it's so hard to pass a guy on the corner. Yesterday, there's a guy standing on the corner with a sign. He's got a kitty cat, little mini and a sign that says, I have cancer. You know, anything can help. I know where the money's going. Yeah. And so it's so hard to pass that guy up and not, I mean, 20 bucks is, you know, not going to make a difference in my life. 
but no one where it's going to go. Yeah. And I'm not helping this guy. See, I'm, see, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like you. Cody's the guy that I'm loves the, giving homeless people beer and what. And he doesn't I'm, drink. I'm He's sober. But. I'm the exact opposite. So, what I, 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 so I worked in Austin for about a year. And I only had to go in the office like two days a week. It was kind of a consulting gig. But so I would, I would leave uh, on the, the night I stayed in Austin, I would leave extra early to go to the office. And I would drive around the neighborhood and I would find the guy that I knew was detoxing off alcohol, bro. And big old nasty alcoholic swollen nose, right. red face, and dirty. And, and, I would, and I would find that guy. That would be the guy I would find. And I'd be like, hey, man, come here. And he might not even be begging, dude. He might just be over there somewhere. And I'm like, hey, man, come here, come here. And I give him 20. I'd be like, go get you a fucking 12 pack. Go get, and that dude, hand to God, like nine times out of 10, we love country boys. We fucking love y'all. You guys understand that. That happened. I mean, and that's what I like to do. I was like, I know where it's going. I don't really give a shit. They're going to do it. You know, if I'm going to give them 20 bucks and it keeps them from sticking up somebody with a gun. Yeah, I'm good with that. Still, that's yeah. another way to look at it. Yeah, it they're going to get the money one way or the other. Yeah, they are. And so those are the guys. I'll, I'll go find those guys who really need to drink or really need to get well yeah. and be like, those are the guys I'm going to give money to. Not that guy who I think is like, you know, got four or five girls working for him too, and he's like, this is a whole pyramid scheme. Right. I'm not, that's not the guy. <laughs> I'll I go get him a bag of McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. I yeah. won't give them money. I just can't give them money. I can't either. I just yeah. can't do it. But I know where I, they're going. I do. I know where they're going. I don't care. I like, <laughs> you, know. you got anything else? I don't, man. I don't. I'm I, super grateful I, for I today, man. I'm so... Uh, th- this has been really fun. Very and well. I can't I tell you how much I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, All right. Yeah, sure. All right. Thank All right thanks for listening, guys. Thank Bye. you, guys. Love y'all. Come back. Every day I'm hustling, 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 hustling. Every day I'm hustling, 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 every day I'm, every day I'm, every day I'm hustling, 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 every day I'm, every day I'm, every day I'm hustling. Think you're fucking with, I'm the fucking boss. 745, white on white, that's fucking Ross.